Jim thought to himself, well, yeah, that's one of my favorites. I, I would imagine that would be the song that they'd pick for this event. <laughs> and then he looked around and he saw all these people. He's like, wow, I can't believe they all came out for this. I mean, some of these people I haven't seen since, since high school. Yeah. And then Jim saw his mom and his dad sitting there up front with, with his wife and his, his kids. <laughs> Thought about his wife. And saw at the end there his seat. He could go and have a seat there, the other side of the kids. And he, he thought, man, my wife, she's always been so strong. Such a rock. And yet now, it's, it's a tough one. She's going to need all the strength that she can get. And, and he thought, I know, my, I know my kids are here with her. That's going to give her strength. And I know the Lord is with her for sure. That's going to give her strength as well. The music stopped and the pastor came up to the lectern. And he said, good morning. And he went on and he said, on behalf of the family of James Harold Montgomery, I just want to welcome you all here this morning. James Harold Montgomery, that's Jim's formal name. <laughs> and the pastor went on and said, we are here to honor his life, but even more importantly, we're here to honor the Lord Jesus the giver of life and the giver of eternal life. And so as we begin this funeral service, let's pray. And the pastor then went into a prayer. Jim was there to witness his own funeral. Imagine if you could look ahead to the future and see your funeral. Who do you think would be there? And what do you think they'd say about you at your funeral? You know, it's inevitable for every single one of us here. We're all going to end up being that person that people come to see their funeral. And what do you think is going to happen at that funeral? How do you think it's going to go? I know what you're thinking. Why are you talking about this, Jeremy? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's somewhat morbid, isn't it? I mean, you might be thinking, I, I, didn't come, I came here to think happy thoughts, not to think, you know, thoughts about my own funeral, like when I'm going to die. What are, what are you doing? Well, it's interesting. If you read the Bible over and over again, it actually tells us that we should think about that day. That actually we should keep our mind focused on that day. A matter of fact, in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13, listen to these words. The Apostle Peter writes these words. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. And then listen to this. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are told to fix our hope Keep our attention on that future day when God is going to allow us to experience his grace on a whole new level. That day when we will see Jesus in all of his glory, he will be revealed to us 
in a, in a way that we've never known him before. God's word tells us to prepare our minds for action. To be sober, which means to be self-controlled, to be clear-headed as we keep our focus, our hope, on our eternity. Well, we're in this series entitled, Do Good, or I'm sorry, Do Right. And it's a series going through the book of 1 Peter. And this morning, as we continue through this series, we just started last week, and we finish up chapter 1 and dive into chapter 2 a little bit, I think we're going to see how we are to do right, how we're to live rightly in light of that day that's coming, in light of that day when others will be around at our funeral. It's really the focus of the letter as we continue on. And so, let's talk about how to live for that day. How do we live for that day? I want to give us four ways that the text will unpack for us. The first one is this, we live for that day by growing in holiness. Growing in holiness. Let's continue reading in verse 14. It says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which you are yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, I want to draw your attention to a little word that's found in each of those three verses. It's the word be. You see it there? I've highlighted it here for you. In verse 14 and 15 and 16, that little word be is important. Matter of fact, it's more important in the last two because in verse 14, it's actually not in the original language. You could actually translate this, do not conform to your former lusts, etc., etc. That be actually in the original language isn't in there. But in verses 15 and 16, the word be is actually there. And in verse 16, if we just jump down to verse 16, it's called a state of being verb, which means it's telling us that this is how we're supposed to exist. This is how we're supposed to live, that we're supposed to live holy lives. And yet in verse 15, it's a totally different Greek word, absolutely different Greek word there. And, and that be in verse 15 means to become. And that's very important, that we are called to continue to become holy in our lives so that we might live the way that God wants us to live. And notice how it says what we're to become holy in. It says, in all your behavior, or in every single way of life, that no matter how you figure out your own life, that every single area of our lives ought to continue to grow in holiness. Now, throughout our lives, it is a never-ending calling to grow in holiness. Uh, which means um, we have to grow in righteousness or in purity, that we have to continue to have insights into what's true and then make sure that we move our lives in that direction. But if this life is all about just evaluating our lives and seeing how we fall short, seeing how we haven't arrived yet, you know, seeing how, oh, I gotta keep growing here, or oh, I've, I've, you know, I know that I'm not quite there yet here, and we're, we're constantly seeing how it's an, a never-ending carrot in front of us that we can never attain this holiness that God calls us to. If that's the calling on my life, I don't want anything of it. If that's what this text is saying, forget it, I'm done, I don't want that. I don't know about you. 
But let's be careful again as to how we grow in holiness. How we grow in holiness is so critical here. Let me read these two verses again where that B shows up. Verses 15 and 16. Let's be careful here. It says this, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now notice what it doesn't say. It does not say be holy by observing religious practices. It does not say be holy by uh, aligning everything with the laws or the rules, by keeping the laws or the rules. It does not say be holy by buying into a philosophy in order to live that way. Let's be really clear what this does say. I've highlighted it here for you on the screen. It says, like the Holy One who called you, be holy. And then in verse 16, he says, be holy, you shall be holy. And then he adds, for I am holy. Now, as a parent, I, I'm interested in the friends that my children have. And I would imagine that as a parent, uh, you too are interested in the friends that your kids hang out with. Why are we so concerned about the friends that our kids hang out with? Because we know that the friends that they hang out with are going to influence them and they're going to kind of become like their peers, right? They're going to kind of become like the friends that they're hanging out with, right? Well, this is the principle of what God is saying here in his word. God tells us here to become holy, we have to draw near to him. To become holy, we have to call on the Lord. We have to spend time with the Lord. We've got to get to know the Lord. Place our trust in Him. Walk by faith in Him as the Holy One who called you. And as He is holy, we've got to invest in that relationship with Him. Let me be crystal clear here. The, to live for that day, that day that's coming for every single one of us, to live for that day the only way to grow in holiness. The absolute only way to grow in holiness. And, and honestly, it's amazing. Sometimes it's intense. But this journey to grow in holiness, the only way to become more and more holy is to turn to the Lord. To rely on Him. To pursue Him in all that we do. In all that we are. In all of our ways, all of our behavior, focus our attention on Him. That's how we live for that day. Secondly, we live for that day by respecting God our Father. This leads right into this second one. By respecting God our Father. Look at verse 17. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves in fear or in respect, in reverence during the time of your stay on earth. While we're living this life, we look forward to that day that's coming and we're to respect God as our Father. Now notice what it says here in verse 17. It says that He is going to judge our works. This judgment is not a matter of us being rescued. It's not a matter of us uh, being saved, that we're, that we're with him forever. I mean, 
He is the one by his work who rescues us out of our lostness, who rescues us out of our darkness, who, who, who makes sure that we can be with him forever. That's his work. As a matter of fact, Peter wants to be crystal clear about this as he says these next couple of verses. Look at verse 18. He says, knowing that you were not redeemed, that means freed by paying a ransom, knowing that you were, were freed from being lost, freed from your sin, freed from your guilt, um, that all of this was paid for, not with perishable things like silver or gold or your feudal, uh, from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers. By the way, the feudal way of life inherited from our forefathers is a life that only thinks about today. It's a life that doesn't look forward to, the, to that day when others will be at our funeral. Yeah, he goes on, verse 19. But we were purchased, we were redeemed with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. He says, by grace you have been saved. And we're saved by God's grace, his goodness to us, even though we, we don't deserve it. And because of his grace, Jesus came and died for your sins and my sins. And we put our faith in him, we trust him, and we get, are given the gift of eternal life. By grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves, not of works, lest any of us should boast. We get to be with the Lord forever because of what Jesus has done for us. And yet, our works, as it says here in verse 17, our works, how we live now, matters for that day coming. We will be rewarded by the Lord if we live this life respecting God as our Father. So the obvious question is, how do we respect him? How do we live respecting God? Peter knew that would be our question, and so he writes on in verse 20. He says, For he, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you and me, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Notice it says here that Jesus appeared in these last days for us. Because Jesus came and died on the cross, paid a penalty for our sins, rose from the grave, and is sitting at the right hand of God the Father right now. He's forever making intercession for us. He's forever, uh, his scarred hands and feet are shown so that our, our, our Father always is reminded that we are forgiven because of what he's done for us. Because of what he's done for us, and because he went there, he sends his Holy Spirit inside of us so that we can pursue him. Because of all of this, we get to respect God the Father. We can live this day for that day by respecting him. How do we respect him? It's seen there at the end of verse 21. This is how we respect him. It says this, so that your faith and hope are in God. To respect him is to need him. To respect God is to need God. It's to put our faith in him, our trust in him, that we believe that he is who he says he is, and because of who he says he is, we can trust him, we can hope in him. Do we believe that he is our father? And that father knows best, as the line says. And so, to respect him, we say, Lord, I need you. Oh, how I need you 
Every hour I need you. Because we're living for that day that's coming. Well, third, we live for that day by loving one another. Loving one another. That's what Peter goes on to say in verse 22. Notice he says, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. You know, all this growing in holiness and respecting God as our Father really means nothing unless we love one another. It means nothing unless we love one another. And you see the two descriptions here on how we're to love one another. Notice it says we're to love from a, with a sincere love, and then it says that we are to fervently love. Let me break those two down for us a little bit so we understand what kind of love we're talking about here. First of all, let's talk about a sincere love. Sincere. It means uh, being without pretense. It means to be genuine. It means to be authentic. Uh, would you agree with me if I said we all tend to wear masks around one another? I mean, think about it. Um, let's say that you're the boss, right? You're the boss. So, so what do you do? You put on the boss mask. And the boss mask is, okay, yep, I'm glad you're all here, and I'm, uh, but I want you to know the buck stops here. I've got the buck stops here, I'm the boss mask on, and uh, you know, I'm the one calling the shots, I'm the one making sure that this happens, I'm the boss. We put on a boss mask. Or let's say that uh, you're dating, you know, you want to date, and uh, somebody calls you up and they want to have a date with you, and um, so what, what mask do we put on? We put on the I'm a good catch mask. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We put on the, you know, I'm funny, I'm, I'm charming, I, I look good, I, I have the mask that says, I think you can really get to know me and really kind of like me. The I'm a good catch mask. <laughs> uh, we also, you know, let's just say that we're out with our friends, you know, we're out with people that, that kind of know us and uh, we're having a good time. And yet there's something inside of us that's a little bit um, insecure. But we put on the, I'm not insecure, I have it all together mask. I have it all together and we're having a good time and I'm right in the mix and everything's going great. But, you know, I don't want you to know that deep down inside I'm feeling a little insecure about who I am. Yeah, I think we could agree. We tend to wear masks in life. A sincere love is where we are on a passionate pursuit of loving from a pure heart. A, a sincere love is creating an environment where it is okay to let down the mask. It's safe to be who we are. It's where we love each other, warts and all. It's, it's the kind of love where I'm free to be me and you're free to be you kind of love. Sincere love. You know, we might as well get good at loving each other because we're going to be spending forever with one another, you know? So now's the time to practice. Now's the time to work at loving each other well with a sincere love. How do we practice that? How do we do it? Well, I think it's that second description. It says, 
fervently love one another from the heart. To picture what fervently love one another is, I, I, I picture someone who's in a race, and they're running as fast as they possibly can. And what do they do when they get to the tape? What do they do when they get to the line? When they get to the line, they give that extra lean. They give that extra push. Even though they're totally exhausted, they give that little extra effort right at the end. Or someone who's doing a long jump, you know? They're running. When they do a long jump, you don't kind of run and just kind of go. When they do a long jump, they run with all they have and they push off of that board. And then they just stretch out as far as they possibly can to get as far as they can on that jump. That's a picture of fervently loving. Going as far as we can with love. Just doing all that we can to give that extra effort, especially when we're tired and everything. We just push it all the way there. You know, um, I've said this before, but I think it's a good time to say it again. Um, back in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 13 is known as the love chapter, you know. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8a is like the definition of what love is all about. And, and the whole chapter is really about how to love one another. And then at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, the last verse, it really lays out these three things. And it's interesting what it says. If, if you just go with me quickly, 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 13, listen what the Apostle Paul writes. He says this when he sums it all up. He says, now, faith, hope, love, Abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Now, if you've been around me a while, you, you know what I say about that. My understanding of that is when asked why is love the greatest of the three, my answer is because it's the hardest. Of the three, love is the hardest to achieve. Love is the hardest to actually practice. Sincere love, loving fervently, takes a lot of work. It's not easy. Knowing how to love well is a challenge. But we can choose to be committed to it. We can keep loving no matter what. And help each other on how to love well. I think it's really what it means to be the church. <laughs> and what it means to be followers after Jesus. Disciples of His. When we do this together, it's what, what we supposed, we're supposed to be doing. As a matter of fact, Jesus said it Himself. It was recorded in John 13.35. Jesus says these words. He says, By this all men will know, that you're my disciples. All, everybody's going to know that you follow after me. Here's how they'll know. He says, if you have love for one another. We love each other because we fix our hope on that day coming. We love each other because we know there's coming a day when we're going to see the Savior, Jesus, who loves us so much we're going to see him face to face one day. And because he loves us, we're to love each other. It's how we focus on that day that's coming. Well, fourth, we, we live for that day by craving God's word. By being hungry for God's word. Back in 1 Peter chapter 1, 
Continue reading in verse 23, Peter goes on, he says, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off. In other words, that day is coming. Our funeral is ahead of us. But, he says in verse 25, the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word of which was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, I think that ties us back to that sincere and fervent love. We've got to get rid of that stuff if we're going to have a sincere and fervent love for one another. Verse 2, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. There it is, back to growing, growing in holiness in respect to that day that's coming. And we are to long for the pure or perfect spiritual milk, which the New American Standard Bible adds of the word tying us back to chapter 1. Like newborn babies... Newborn babies, they need a lot. They need a lot of attention to grow. They need to be held. Newborn babies, they, they need um, to hear the voice of those around them to help them grow. They need shelter. They can't just kind of be out in the elements all by themselves. Uh, they need shelter to grow. But at its very foundation, at its very foundation, the foundational thing that they need to grow is the nourishment that they get in milk. For us, to grow in our faith, to get ready for that day that's coming, we need each other's love, like we just talked about. We need the Holy Spirit in us to help us. We need the shelter of the church family. We need these things, and yet, at its very foundation, the nourishment that we need is the nourishment of the Word of God. Without it, as we look forward to that day, we will get off course. We will move in a direction that doesn't align with God's will for our lives. We need God's Word. Yet, I'm afraid that even as I say that, many Christians aren't sure how to be fed by God's Word. I mean, what a, how, how do we make sure that we're continuously getting the nourishment that we need from God's Word? Well, um, one thing that we're supposed to do that Peter does lay out here is that um, the Word of God is preached to us, like what we're doing right here this morning. This is actually biblical. God tells us to come under the preaching of the Word of God. Not just here, in other places as well. And we need to spur each other on in alignment with the Word of God. So we, we get together and we have relationships under the authority of God's Word. That's where we get together with groups that we call home discipleship groups. You know, HDGs we call them. It's like small groups where we're relating to other people. And we're opening up God's Word together. And we're learning what God's will for our lives is. Or Bible studies or other groups that we have here that we get together under the authority of God's Word. 
and then there's always the time alone with God time. You know, just us personally. How do we nurture ourselves in the Word of God? How do we do that? I think for many, many Christians, that's where it's kind of not you know, so easy. Uh, you start to like, read the Bible and it's kind of not really having much of an impact. You know? uh, um, let me just give us a few guidelines to help us to feed off of God's Word. One is, I think it's an important component to just pick a time where you do it on a routine basis. Like for me, I, I do it first thing in the morning. It's the first thing I have a cup of coffee and I just spend some time in God's Word. Just, just me and Him. I don't know when it would work for you, but just think about how to make a, a routine of being in His Word. And although a lot of people can, you know, like they do different things like uh, read through the Bible in a year or something and they start plowing in and, you know, Genesis is kind of interesting and then they get to Leviticus and they're kind of like, oh, I don't know, well, okay, well, I'll just keep going, you know, and and they kind of get a glossy-eyed stare, glassy-eyed stare uh, when it comes to reading the Bible. Let me just, uh, uh, about a year ago or so, we had a class here um, going through the New Testament. And they use this method called the Swedish Bible study method. Have you heard of this? I would say when I've seen different study methods, this has got to be the simplest, the most basic Bible study method that's out there. And it's super, super simple. It'll get us started. I mean, there's deeper ways to dig in. But if we just say, well, let's just use this, at least it'll get us started to kind of really get nourishment from God's Word. There's three symbols that you just got to think of when you think of the Swedish Bible study method. The first is the light bulb. A light bulb. So you pick a section of the Scriptures, whatever that section is. Most Bibles like, have different sections with headlines. You just pick that chunk of the, of the Scriptures, and you just say, okay, the light bulb is, well, what stuck out to me? What sort of does it seem like the light is shining on that? Like that kind of stands out. That kind of strikes me interesting in an interesting way. So you read and you go, oh, okay, well, that's kind of interesting. You know, and you just kind of highlight those things. Um, maybe have a, a, a journal next to you or something to write with. Uh, the second symbol is a question mark. So as you're reading that section, you just start to log the questions that you have from the text. Like for me, sometimes when I'm reading, and uh, you know, there might be a um, there might be a a place uh, that comes out. You know, he was from Pontus or whatever. And my question is, well, where's that? You know, something like that. Or or well, what did he mean by that? Or who's the what? Okay, is he writing to this person? Is he writing to anybody? Whatever question you have as you're reading, just log those questions. And then the third symbol is the arrow. The arrow is like, well, what sort of hits me, you know? As I'm reading that, what, what kind of application does God want to give to me in this moment? As I'm reading that, how does that hit me like, oh, well, that, that's going to help me today. That's going to that's gonna make me figure out how to do something maybe a little bit different today. So the arrow is like the application for our own life. So when you're reading that section of Scripture, slow down a little bit and just remember the light bulb, the question mark, and the arrow. Perfectly simple way to begin to get nourishment out of God's Word. Because to live for that day, we must have a craving for it. Well, let me just finish this morning with the why. <laughs> why be completely committed to living for that day? That that should ever be on our minds. 
Why be sold out to keeping our eternity in focus at all times, surrendering our lives to these four things that I laid out this morning? Let me say this. The motivation for this is the kindness of the Lord. The motivation for living for that day is because you and I know the kindness of the Lord in this day. Let me take you back to the text. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. And then listen to verse 3. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. I hope for all of us as we read verse 3 that we find ourselves nodding. Yeah, I have. Have you tasted the kindness of the Lord in your life? How have we known his kindness? I mean, Peter laid out being redeemed, you know, being bought uh, by the precious blood of Jesus. He, he laid that out for us. And, and that's, that's God's kindness. How else have we experienced his kindness? Have, has he given us wisdom in our lives? We needed it. Have you experienced God's comfort in your life when things feel uncertain? Have we understood that God has allowed us to be companions with Him in His work in the world? Like we get to be alongside God as He's working in the world. He actually wants to work through us. Why? Because He's good to us. Have we known the kindness of the Lord in our lives? If you and I have, and I'll bet for most of you, me included, we have, then we should live with our focus on that day that's coming when we'll see our good and kind God. A while back, Years ago, really, I stumbled upon or came upon a poem that I think, I think you've maybe heard it, maybe you haven't, but um, it's called The Dash. Have you heard that, of that poem? I think it kind of captures uh, the essence of what I've been talking about this morning. Let me share with you this poem called The Dash by Linda Ellis as we finish up here this morning. It says this, I read of a man who stood to speak at a funeral of a friend. He referred to the dates on the tombstone from the beginning to the end. He noted that first came the date of birth and spoke of the following date with tears. But he said what mattered most of all was the dash between those years. For that dash represents all the time they spent alive on earth. And now only those who love them know what that little line is worth. For it matters not how much we own, the cars, the house, the cash. What matters is how we live in love and how we spend our dash. So think about this long and hard. Are there things you'd like to change? For you never know how much time is left that still can be rearranged. To be less quick to anger 
and show appreciation more and love the people in our lives like we've never loved before. If we treat each other with respect and more often wear a smile, remember that this special dash might only last a little while. So when your eulogy is being read with your life's actions to rehash, would you be proud of the things they say about how you lived your dash? Would God be proud of the things they're going to say at how we lived our dash? Let's pray together. Lord, our time on earth, your word says, is like a vapor. So short in comparison to our eternity. And yet here we are. Lord, I pray that we will um, live this life in a way that we know will have a, a positive impact on that eternity. Lord, for all of us, we don't know the day when our life on this side of heaven will be through. So I hope for all of us that we won't take it lightly this day that you've given to us. God, help us to live this dash well. Help us to love you well. Help us to love each other well, sincerely and fervently. And God, thank you that you have loved us and because of your love for us, we can love each other and love you back. Thank you, God, that you had the greatest love of all in laying your life down for us. And we want to take a moment to just focus our minds and hearts on that love as we take communion together. So, Lord, help us. Help us in this moment to draw near to you and draw near to one another as we take communion. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.